0: And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location, Three, two, one. it's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding! You can't make the stuff up. Do not believe the rumors. Do not believe the rumors. We have not been hacked by the Russians. That is not the reason why you've had to wait three months for a new episode of this show. No, there's just been too much going on. That's all it is. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new full-length episode of Tradcast, a traditional Roman Catholic podcast like no other. Well, not long ago, we celebrated the Great Feast of Pentecost, and in the Novus Ordo sect, that came with some additional enthusiasm this year, because 2017 marks the 50th anniversary of the so-called Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement, which is basically a whole religion by itself. And for this reason, it's very popular among Novus Ordos and Protestants, because it's yet another thing that isn't Catholic. The Charismatic Renewal people, I don't know, they're they're always looking for some new outpouring of the Holy Ghost, like a new Pentecost. And that by itself is heretical already. We don't need a new outpouring of the Holy Ghost because the first one in 33 AD was good enough. If you're looking for a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our day, you obviously haven't understood the first one because that one outpouring 2,000 years ago is applied to each and every one of us today in the Sacrament of Confirmation. That's where we receive the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, piety, fortitude, fear of the Lord, and counsel. So, we don't need a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The whole charismatic movement is a cesspool of heresy, heresy about the nature of the church, the necessity of the church for salvation, grace, faith, the sacraments, and so forth. Now, Francis, of course, loves it, as he loves anything that isn't Catholic, and uh, he showed up at their big ecumenical anniversary celebration in Rome on June 3rd for the vigil of Pentecost, and, of course, he gave a speech. He always has something to say, and he endorsed, of course, their pseudo-sacrament of baptism in the Spirit. He acted as though Protestants and Catholics all belonged to the true church, and that this church, however, is divided, and unity needs to be sought in a reconciled diversity. Then, of course, he promoted for the umpteenth time his ecumenism of blood, and so it was heresy all over. We'll link the whole speech he gave in our show notes so you can suffer through it for yourself. Go to Tratcast.org, look for episode number 18, and there you will find the link. Alrighty, what has been happening in the blogosphere? Well, John Salza is getting on my nerves, but I guess that's uh, nothing new really. Uh, so he posted this big article on the Remnant's Fetzenfliegen blog entitled, Note to Sedevacantists Heresy does not automatically sever one from the church. And then he spent all this time arguing essentially that yes, heresy does separate one from the church automatically, but only spiritually and not legally. Now, Steve Sperry over at catholictopgun.com has responded to Salza's essay, and we'll just put a link to that as well. Uh, But what I'd like to say is this. First, I find it odd that Salza's article sets out to explain what Pope Pius XII meant when he taught in his encyclical Mystici Corporis that heresy by its nature severs a man from the body of the Church— And then, the funny thing is that out of all the sources he uses to explain that, not a single one is from after the time Pius XII wrote that encyclical, 1943. Now, that doesn't mean that what he quotes is necessarily wrong, but... Why wouldn't you just use theologians that wrote on this after Mr. Corporis? Because this way, you're making sure that they have definitely incorporated Pius XII's teaching in their explanations and conform to it. So, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We can simply look this up. What is the Catholic position on heresy and church membership? I consulted three pre-Vatican II theological works that were written after Corporis to answer that question. Let's start with Monsignor Gerard van Noort, who is also quoted by Salza, but misrepresented. Quote, A heretic is one who denies a truth of divine and Catholic faith, that is, a truth which has been revealed by God and proposed by the Church for our belief. Heretics are classified as public or occult, formal or material. A public heretic is one whose heresy is known to a large number of people, even if he has not formally joined the ranks of a heretical church. An occult heretic is one whose errors in faith are either totally unknown or known only to a few. A formal heretic is one who stubbornly and guiltily adheres to heresy. A material heretic is one who innocently and in good faith subscribes to some heretical doctrine. Okay, so standard explanation here. Then, public heretics are not members of the church. They are not members because they separate themselves from the unity of Catholic faith and from the external profession of that faith. Obviously, therefore, they lack one of the three factors—baptism, profession of the same faith, union with the hierarchy—pointed out by Pius XII as requisite for membership in the church. The same pontiff has explicitly pointed out that, unlike other sins, heresy, schism, and apostasy automatically sever a man from the church. By the term public heretics, at this point we mean all who externally deny a truth or several truths of divine and Catholic faith, regardless of whether the one denying does so ignorantly and innocently, a merely material heretic, or willfully and guiltily, a formal heretic. It is certain that public formal heretics are severed from church membership. It is the more common opinion that public material heretics are likewise excluded from membership. Theological reasoning for this opinion is quite strong. If public material heretics remained members of the Church, the visibility and unity of Christ's Church would perish. If these purely material heretics were considered members of the Catholic Church in the strict sense of the term, how would one ever locate the Catholic Church? How would the Church be one body? How would it profess one faith? Where would be its visibility? Where its unity? For these and other reasons, we find it difficult to see any intrinsic probability to the opinion which would allow for public heretics in good faith remaining members of the Church. Unquote. So that was Van Noort, Christ's Church, pages 239, 241, and 242. Then Father Joachim Salaveri from his treatise on the Church of Christ. Quote, that formal and manifest heretics are not members of the body of the Church can well be said to be the unanimous opinion among Catholics. That merely material heretics, even if manifest, are members of the Church is defended by Franzilin, de Grote, Derbigny, Caparan, Terion, and a few others. But the contrary opinion is more common. And then a little further down he says, Reason recommends the same doctrine, for if formal and manifest heretics and schismatics were members of the body of the church, that would be the end of the unity and uniqueness of the visible church, which is repugnant. The church is the congregation of the faithful. Schismatics have ceased being congregated, and heretics have ceased being faithful, Unquote. So that's uh, Father Joachim Salaveri, and uh, for those who would like to read the entire Uh, section that uh, pertains to that. It's pages 422 to 427, uh, and that is part of the Sacre Theologiae Summa, Volume 1b, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And lastly, let's go to Father Ludwig Ott. This is going to be very short. From his book, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, page 311, quote, Public heretics, even those who err in good faith, material heretics, do not belong to the body of the church, that is, to the legal commonwealth of the church. However, this does not prevent them from belonging spiritually to the church by their desire to belong to the church, votum ecclesiae and through this, achieving justification and salvation, unquote. So that actually sounds very much like the opposite of what Salza was saying, doesn't it? But that is the teaching of the Church, and that's what we have to ascend to. So, exit John Salza. Next, let's go to Frank Walker. He is the editor of the canon212.com news aggregator website. Now, you can tell he's really struggling because he can see what an apostate Francis is, but somehow it seems he just can't get himself to say that Francis isn't the Pope. Now, that's a very common symptom these days, and we'll talk about that more later. But right now, I want to address something that Frank Walker said in his videocast of April 7th of this year. Now, unfortunately, that video is no longer up, and I I didn't save it, so I can't play the audio for you, so I hope you'll just trust me on this. Walker said in that video, um, I think it was around the 1 minute and 30 second mark, he said verbatim, quote, to be in union with Francis is a sin, unquote. Now, to say that and to maintain at the same time that he is the Pope is absurdity on stilts. That is the epitome of schism. But it highlights the quandary that the semi-traditionalists have. On the one hand, Catholic teaching requires them to be in union with the Pope. On the other hand, Catholic teaching requires them not to be in union with heretics. So, what is the necessary conclusion? The necessary conclusion is that either Francis isn't a heretic or Francis isn't the Pope. But this middle ground sort of position where you can have your pope but yet not be in union with his religion is absolutely impossible. And, you know, Father Paul Robinson of the Society of St. Pius X tried to defend this very absurd idea just the other day when he published an article entitled Unity of Faith with Pope Francis and Canonical Recognition of the SSPX. In all seriousness, he argued that Catholics don't have to hold the same faith as the Pope. Now, we blew that out of the water big league in our response entitled The SSPX and Pope Francis, Theological Absurdistan on Full Display. And, of course, we have both linked in the show notes. So you can examine all of this for yourself at your leisure. Now, one more thing regarding Canon 212.com. On that same day, April 7th, the top story there was False Church, thanked by Francis for Sacrilegious Communion Guidelines, Malta Archbishop Shakluna O'Kay's contraception. That was the biggest headline, and yes, we do have a screenshot of it in case anyone wants to see it. So when I saw that headline, false church, I was thinking to myself, what does it take? Can we please figure out that if it's a false church, then its head is a false pope? How come everything about this religion is false except its head? It blows the mind. If you hold that Francis is a true pope, but he's not a Catholic, and his church is a false church, you are doing incalculable damage to the papacy. And we've been through this a few times on this podcast, so I won't repeat it all again here. But, um, I mean, you can just listen to the prior episodes at Tradcast.org. So, look at what Francis is doing to so many people who mean to be good and faithful traditional Catholics. They are abandoning faith in the papacy instead of abandoning Francis. That's what he's doing to them, all the while they think they're being faithful to Catholic tradition. By the way, a Novus Ordo priest by the name of Linus Clovis spoke at the Rome Life Conference recently back in May and essentially said the same thing about a false church, an anti-church. Well, so far, so good. There certainly is an anti-church in Rome that is opposing the true church, that's for sure. Except that Father Clovis claimed that this anti-church was prophesied and opposed by Saint John Paul II. Now, this is utter nonsense. No one made the anti-church more palatable to the people than John Paul II. That's the guy who promoted the disgusting theology of the body, which we've called a pornology because that's basically what it is. That's the pope who started the interreligious Assisi World Day of Prayer for Peace back in 1986. That's the same John Paul II who loved paganism and, when visiting Benin in 1993, lauded the voodoo witch doctors for their sense of celebration and their regard for the moral life and whatnot. So, if we want to talk about an anti-church, we can. We can. But it's not one that was opposed and warned against by John Paul II. It's one that was endorsed, facilitated, and promoted by him. The blindness of some people is just staggering. The anti church didn't just come to the fore under Francis. It clearly came to the fore at Vatican two, after the first false pope, John the Twenty Third, had prepared the way, and all his successors happily joined in the charade. You know, aside from personal intentions that the individuals involved here may have, what I think is happening here, objectively speaking, is that people who realize that something is really wrong and can even conceive of a false church masquerading as the true one are being directed in such a way that they amount to a false controlled opposition. Because this is exactly what this is. If you oppose Francis, perhaps even agree he is a false pope, but you juxtapose him with John Paul II and Benedict XVI perhaps as heroes of orthodoxy, well then you're just as misled as before you're still caught up in the same modernist apostate anti-church, except you're actually in a worse place now because now you think you've escaped the deception of the anti-church when you really haven't. And and that's how controlled oppositions work. All right, let's move on to something else for a while. Steve Kelmeyer, a Novus Ordo apologist, a modeled Novus Ordo apologist, one who defends everything that is wrong with the Vatican II sect. Uh, wrote a post on his blog entitled, All Roads Lead to Rome. Now, I had mentioned in the last cast, number 17, that I was going to cover this in the next episode, and here we are. Kalmyer's blog, by the way, is appropriately named The Fifth Column, and it qu- quickly becomes clear why that is. The author destroys the very foundations of Catholicism under a veneer of defending the Church. Calmeyer's post-All Roads lead to Rome defends France's first-ever Pope video back in January 2016, which you may recall was a big promotion of apostasy, where representatives from four different religions exclaimed that they have belief in something or other. And his conclusion, France's conclusion at the end of the video, was that the only certainty in matters of religion that we can really have is that we are all children of God. And that's the man the SSPX is trying to be recognized by. Just as an aside, I mean the thing was so bad that you could just scream. We'll put a link to that in the show notes, together with our commentary, so you can uh, you can see that again if you if you don't recall it. Anyway, so Kelmeyer, in his typical Novus Ordo way, tries to defend this. And here's what he says in his blog post Quote, Some people are upset that Pope Francis recently taught yet another truth of the Catholic faith. All religions ultimately lead to God. Many Catholics mistakenly believe this is an error. It is not. Unquote. Now, this is outrageous. All religions ultimately lead to God? Well, you know what? I guess you can say that that is Vatican II doctrine, that is Novus Ordo doctrine. So in that regard, yes, Kalmeyer is definitely being a faithful defender of his modernist religion. Actually, it jives perfectly with what Father Raniero Cantalamesa, the preacher of the anti-papal household, said on March 29, 2002, in the presence of that great hero of orthodoxy, John Paul II, that false religions, quote, are not merely tolerated by God, but positively willed by him as an expression of the inexhaustible richness of his grace and his will for everyone to be saved, unquote. Apostasy, blasphemy. This is pure blasphemous apostasy. False religions are from the devil himself, and their purpose is to lead men away from God, from Christ, from the truth. But Vatican II and the Novus Ordo religion turn this around, and just like Francis does with Amoris Letizia, make every error into a partial affirmation of the truth. This is diabolical. Now, let's look at what Kelmeyer says next in his post. Quote, Keep in mind that Jesus Christ is the path to God. No one can come to the Father except through Christ. Likewise, the only way to fully know Christ is through the Catholic Church. But the point the Pope wanted to stress was simple all roads lead to Rome. Now, here we have typical Novos Ordo BS, and I don't mean Barbara Streisand. The strategy is affirm the traditional Catholic teaching in words first and then undermine it by explaining what it supposedly really means. Notice how Kelmeyer snuck in the word fully when he says that the only way to know Christ fully is through the Catholic Church. Actually, no, the only way to know Christ at all is through the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church alone has been entrusted with divine revelation. Protestant sects may proclaim some truths about Christ, sure, but those are truths that were stolen from the Catholic Church. So, at the end of the day, it's still through the Catholic Church that such truths are known. But it is absurd to now go ahead and praise the Protestant sects for some of the truths about Christ they proclaim, because not only have they stolen them from the Catholic Church, they also mix those truths with damnable errors. In fact, the only way you can get these truths about Christ from them is if you take the whole package that they have to offer, and that is filled with heresy. So, if someone steals a bottle of water from you, pours a glass of that water, and then puts arsenic in it, and then offers it to you, you don't say, Hey, thanks, I commend you for the elements of H2O you've given me. I thank God for using you to help me stay hydrated. I mean, what utter nonsense is that? But that's exactly what Vatican II doctrine is, and Kelmeyer exemplifies it in that blog post. So no, the truth is quite simply that not all roads lead to Rome, and not all religions lead to God. This is simply a more sinister version of the modernist error condemned explicitly by Pope Pius XI in Mortalium Animos, paragraph number two, that all religions are more or less good and praiseworthy. In Pius XI's day, the reason given for that false claim was that they all in different ways manifest and signify that sense which is inborn in us all, meaning a religious sense, a yearning for the divine, the transcendent, the absolute. In our day, the reason given is that all religions contain more or less elements of the truth, and Kallmeier is one of the biggest promoters and defenders of this idea. Now, Let's raise the question, isn't it true though? Isn't it true that all religions do contain some elements of truth? Well, yes, that is indeed so. But what's wrong is the conclusion that the Vatican II sect draws from that, and Kalmyer in particular. Peter Kreeft is another one, by the way. The Vatican II sect concludes that, therefore, all religions are partially good. They all lead to the truth by means of those things in them that are true, and God does not refrain from using them as means of salvation. That is false. In fact, the opposite is true. The fact that they contain some truths makes them all the more dangerous because it makes them more believable. Now, as always, there's no need to take my word for this. I'm not important here. I just want to point you to the Catholic sources where you can see these things for yourself. So, I'm going to give you a quote from the 1886 book, Liberalism is a Sin, by Father Felix Sardai Salvani. This book was examined by the Sacred Congregation of the Index under Pope Leo XIII and was not only found to be free from error, but it actually received the congregation's endorsement and praise. Here's what that book says about the idea that as Catholics, we should always praise truth wherever it may be found, and that this truth will lead us ultimately to the full truth. Here's Father Sarda Isalvani. He's speaking about those Catholics who are tainted with the liberal spirit, quote, They hope to show that it costs a Catholic nothing to recognize merit wherever it may be found. They imagine this to be a powerful means of attracting the enemy. Alas, the folly of the weaklings. They play a losing game. It is they who are insensibly attracted, not the enemy. They simply fly at the bait held out by the cunning fisher who satanically guides the destinies of liberalism. Let us illustrate. When Arnold's Light of Asia appeared, Uh, That's a, a pagan book about the person who became the first Buddha. When Arnold's light of Asia appeared, not a few Catholics joined in the chorus of fulsome praise which greeted it. How charming, how beautiful, how tender, how pathetic, how humane. What lofty morality, what exquisite sentiment. Now, what was the real purport of the book and what was its essence? to lift up gotama the founder of buddhism at the expense of jesus christ the founder of christianity the intention was to show that gotama was equally divine teacher with as high an aspiration as great a mission as lofty a morality as our divine lord himself buddhism in the borrowed garments of christianity was thus made to appeal to the ideals of christian peoples and gaining a footing in their admiration and affections to usurp the throne in the christian sanctuary Here was a work of literary merit, although it has been greatly exaggerated in this respect, praised extravagantly by some Catholics who, in their excessive desire to appear impartial, failed or refused to see in Edwin Arnold's Light of Asia a most vicious anti-Christian book. What difference does it make, whether a book be excellent in a literary sense or not, if its effect be the loss of souls and not their salvation? What if the weapon in the hands of the assassin be bright or not, if it be fatal? Though spiritual assassination be brilliant, it is nonetheless deadly. Heresy under a charming disguise is a thousand times more dangerous than heresy exposed in the harsh and arid garb of the scholastic syllogism, through which death's skull grins in unadorned hideousness. Arianism had its poets to propagate its errors in popular verse. Lutheranism had its humanists, amongst whom the elegant Erasmus, shone as a brilliant writer. Arnold, Nicole, Pascal threw the glamour of their belletra over the serpentine doublings of Jansenism. Voltaire's wretched infidelity won its frightful popularity from the grace of his style and the flash of his wit. Shall we, against whom they aimed the keenest and deadliest shafts, contribute to their name and their renown? Shall we assist them in fascinating and corrupting youth? Shall we crown these condemners of our faith with the laurels of our praises and laud them for the very qualities which alone make them dangerous?' Unquote. That was Father Felix sarda Salvani from his book Liberalism is a Sin, Chapter 18. And yes, you can actually read the whole book for free. Online, you know where to find the link. This right there is the death knell of the Vatican II nonsense about partial truth and all that. Let's go back to Kelmeyer's post now. Here's what else he says. Quote, Every pursuit of truth, no matter where it starts, if followed deeply enough, leads to Catholic faith, Well, that is either true or false, depending on exactly how he means that. If he means that God will assist with his grace, anyone who searches sincerely for the truth and does not refuse the graces given him— then yeah, that person will ultimately be led to the faith by the grace of God. The problem that Kelmeyer entirely ignores is that the false religions he extols so much do not give you just bits and pieces of truth. They also dump on you loads and loads of error. And the only way you can get to even the bits of truth is by accepting the full package of lots of error mixed with a little bit of truth. So, yeah, sure, the Lutherans will, will give you the truth about the divinity of Christ. That's great. Except that they don't offer you only that. When you come to them, they give you the whole package deal with denial of Catholic dogma about grace, justification, sacred tradition, the papacy, the Immaculate Conception, and so on. In his post... Kalmeyer uses one of his favorite analogies to illustrate the supposed truth of what he's saying. He likens the different religions to mathematics to illustrate how they all have a little bit of truth, but the Catholic Church has the fullness of truth. Here's Kallmeier, quote, "...pagans only understand the theological equivalent of arithmetic and nothing beyond it. Islam is a haphazard conglomeration of Judaism, Christianity, and paganism." It can get to theological algebra. It knows that God is all-merciful, all-compassionate. It knows that Mary is a sinless virgin mother. It knows Christ is sinless and the judge on the last day. Islam knows that we are to submit ourselves totally to God, become a slave of Christ, as Paul says, although Muslims would say Allah instead of Christ. But beyond these basics, Muslims cannot go. The Jews understand geometry. They first gave us the theological measure of the universe. They know God is the lawgiver, that God does not deceive, that he wants us to choose life so that we and our descendants might live. Through the Jews, God revealed the importance of liturgy, even though the Jewish liturgy was just practice and has no real effect. They taught us the central truth that is monotheism. Non-liturgical Christians, like the Protestants, can do trigonometry, They know God as three persons in one divine substance, but they don't get any farther. They have two sacraments, baptism and marriage, but they don't understand very much about either of them. They don't understand liturgy at all. So, we can say they know a lot about triangles, but they don't know much about other geometric shapes or how everything fits together. Liturgical Christians, such as the Eastern Orthodox and the Coptics, have access to the full spectrum of liturgical and sacramental life. Through the power of the seven sacraments, they plumb the measure of the infinite Godhead, doing the equivalent of single variable calculus. That is, they understand how the Son works to teach us, how the Spirit works to sanctify us, but they don't fully understand how the Father works to govern us. Only Catholics can plumb the divine infinity to its depth. Only Catholics have mastered not only calculus, but all the other branches of the theological spectrum as well. We understand as fully as men can the relations between the Father, Son, and Spirit. We understand the full spectrum of how he has always intended to govern us, Father, to teach us, Son, and to sanctify us, Holy Spirit." Yeah, very cute, Mr. Kellmeyer, except you've completely missed one inconvenient little fact. All of these false religions advertise themselves as experts in mathematics, giving you all of mathematical knowledge. And whatever mathematical truths they offer, they offer only in conjunction with mathematical error and absurdity. That is the difference, Mr. Kelmeyer, and that difference is conveniently left out in your false analogy. All right, now Kelmeyer concludes saying the following. Thus, it is not that all the other religious faiths are wrong. Rather, none of the other faith systems can provide the comprehensive knowledge of Christ that only Catholic faith can. False. False, false, false. I can't believe this garbage. See how he doesn't evaluate the religious doctrine packet of each religion according to whether it is true or false. He evaluates it according to how closely it approaches the fullness of truth. This is the ecclesiological equivalent of Amoris Laetitia. In fact, Amoris Laetitia was based on this very ecclesiological model. If you recall what was discussed at the synods, we put up a post about that that we'll link in the show notes entitled, What's Good for the Goose is Good for the Gander, How the October Synod Refutes Vatican II's False Ecclesiology. In Amoris Laetitia, the focus is no longer on whether people's intimate relationships are morally good or bad. Those are outdated concepts. The question now is only how close do these situations come to the objective ideal of marriage? And that's what you have here with other religions. The question is no longer asked, is this religion true or false? Is this the religion Christ established? But rather, how closely does this religion resemble Catholicism? How close is this religion to Catholicism? Well, the traditional way to answer that question is to say not close enough, because there is no such thing as almost Catholic. It's an all-or-nothing deal, just like with Christ. In Luke 11:23, 23, quote, whoever is not with me is against me, unquote. That is what Christ taught. Not whoever is not fully with me is partially with me. If you're not in the true church, you're not in the true church. And if you're in a false church or a a false religion, then it doesn't matter how many similarities it has with the true church. Think about this in simple terms. If you're coming out of a shopping mall and you're looking for your car in the parking lot and you find a car that looks very similar to yours but isn't yours, guess what? it's still not your car. It's not even almost your car. It's not your car at all in any way, shape, manner, or form. It's not your car just as much as any other car isn't your car. The similarities to your car are completely irrelevant. It's not your car. That's what matters. All right, one last quote from Kellmeyer before I blow a fuse here. Quote, all religions pursued deeply enough lead to Catholic faith. The study of truth always leads to truth. Every ladder we climb, every road we walk leads us to Rome. Unquote. Once again, false, false, false. And honestly, such idiocy. All religions, if pursued deeply enough, lead to Catholicism? Really? So if I immerse myself deeply in Talmudic Judaism or in Voodooism or some New Age religion, then that will lead me to Catholicism? Such blasphemous absurdity, ladies and gentlemen, is considered top-notch orthodoxy in the Novos Ordo sect nowadays. And that alone says all you need to know. Now, we'll take a break soon, but before we do that, let's have a look at a little more from the blogosphere because there is so much that needs to be addressed and just so little time and so few resources. Christopher Ferreira, as you perhaps know, has a column at FatimaPerspectives.com. On March 10th of this year, he published a post entitled, Was Pope Benedict Driven from Office by the Wolves, he mentioned. Ferrara begins his short article with these words quote, History will forever record the shocking words, oh, the drama, the shocking words of the newly elected Pope Benedict XVI at the Mass for the inauguration of his papacy. Pray for me that I may not flee for fear of the wolves. Those words turned out to be a prophecy. Unquote. Actually, Mr. Ferrara, you know very well that Benedict himself is the wolf and has been since the 1950s and continues to be today. What Ferrara is doing here is simply once again bring to the fore his pet narrative of the glorious Benedict, the innocent lamb of pristine orthodoxy who is fiercely being persecuted by terrible wolves inside that modernist Vatican that has conspired against this great restore of tradition. This is nothing but Ferrarian propaganda. Do we really need to repeat all the facts about Joseph Ratzinger and how much ruin this man has brought to souls with his modernist theology? We'll put a link to the Ratzinger record in our show notes so you can review all this for yourself, and you can decide if this man is a lamb or a wolf. You know, it's funny, a few weeks before John Paul II died, Ferrara was still denouncing Ratzinger as a modernist termite, as exactly the kind of wolf that he is now suggesting Benedict is being threatened by. He sarcastically referred to him as our only friend in the Vatican. Let me quote that for you. The essay appeared, I think, in the mid-February 2005 issue of The Remnant, and it's available online. Quote, Yes, our only friend in the Vatican has struck again. More and more it becomes apparent that this man is perhaps the most industrious ecclesial termite of the post-conciliar epoch, tearing down even as he makes busy with the appearance of building up. The longer Ratzinger guards Catholic doctrine, the more porous the barriers that protected become. Indeed, as I have pointed out more than once on these pages, it was Ratzinger who wrote in 1987, in the second edition of his Principles of Catholic Theology, that the demolition of bastions in the Church is a long-overdue task. The Church, he declared, must relinquish many of the things that have hitherto spelled security for her and that she has taken for granted. She must demolish long-standing bastions and trust solely the shield of faith." Now it seems that, with the bastions all but demolished, even the shield of faith is about to clatter to the ground, unquote. So yeah, Mr. Ferrara, I'm not too worried about Benedict XVI having to flee from the wolves. I mean, he's their daddy. Now, on April 21st, Ferrara published another post for Fatima Perspectives with the title, Can a Pope Resign the Papacy While Still Remaining the Pope? The question lingers. And in this post, Ferrara argues that Benedict XVI's resignation may have been invalid because he has allegedly said that he resigned not from the office of the papacy as such, but only from the ministerial aspect of the papacy while retaining the contemplative aspect. Now, of course, that's a bunch of modernist flatdoodle, and Ferrara realizes this. You can't just decide that the papacy can be expanded into a diarchy where you have an active member and a contemplative member. This is just baloney that was made up by Joseph Ratzinger. But the interesting part is that Ferrara concludes from this, not that Ratzinger is a heretic who denies the papacy and therefore couldn't be pope. No, he concludes from this that Ratzinger's abdication was invalid. So Ferrara is turning everything on its head. Now heresy doesn't keep you from being pope. It keeps you from not being pope. This has everything upside down. It's absolutely crazy. But you see, this is the stuff that people are driven to if they desperately try to make sense of a state of affairs while excluding a priori from the outset, the only correct diagnosis, the chair of St. Peter, is vacant. Look, I know that's not a pretty diagnosis. I know this raises a lot of difficult and uncomfortable questions, but I can't change it. It's true nonetheless. Ferreira is a blind man leading the blind. He's acting like a physician who does not have the cure for cancer, and so he refuses to diagnose the patient with cancer, even though that's exactly what's ailing him. You know, it's one thing to disagree about something, and that's fine. You can talk about it. But this sort of persistent refusal to face up to the facts is very detrimental to souls and very displeasing to Christ. Now, another person in the blogosphere who is going out of his way not to be a, of a contest is Father John Hunwick, whom we've criticized in this podcast before. In May, he published a four-part series on his Mutual Enrichment blog with the catchy title, Is the Pope a Heretic? Now, it was obvious from the get-go how Mr. Hunwick was going to answer that question. No. But how he got to that answer, well, that's another story. To me, that four-part series looked like little more than Mr. Hunwick trying to convince his audience that he's an exceptionally learned man who's got it all figured out and who can use a lot of fancy terminology to ultimately say very little. But to get to the heart of the matter, Hunwick's ultimate thesis was this. Quote, and, dear readers, that is precisely why Papa Bergoglio cannot be deemed a heretic, To be definable as a heretic, he would need to have advanced formally, with full understanding and responsibility, propositional errors. It is perfectly clear to me that he has quite simply not done so. Unquote. False. On both counts. No, it is not necessary to advance formally propositional errors that deny dogma in order to be deemed a heretic. In fact, one need not use words at all gestures and actions can suffice to deny dogma. That's because we don't only use words to communicate. But don't take my word for it. Rather, go to the show notes and look for the essay entitled Essay on Heresy by Arnaldo Vidigal Xavier da Silveira, which is a survey of Catholic theology on that issue. But aside from that, of course Francis has made propositional claims that deny dogma. He said again and again that Catholics in mortal sin are not Christians, which is a heresy. He said that Protestants are members of the body of Christ, which is a heresy. He said that there is an ecumenism of blood, which is a heresy, and which he himself has actually acknowledged might be a heresy. And he even used that very term, heresy. And he indicated that he doesn't care if it is heresy. He's claimed that God cannot be God without man. He said that Christ's authority came from the people rather than from the Godhead, and on and on. So, Mr. Hunwick can live in his own little dream world if he wants to, but one day he will be forced to wake up from it, and I just pray that he'll wake up before his particular judgment. Hunwick also says this, quote, To judge Pope Bergoglio by the canons of formal logic is quite simply to make a genre error. No, not even Jorge Bergoglio is above rational standards. All human beings are subject to the same human reason. That comes with being human. You know, Mr. Hunwick, with this kind of tripe, you only assist the enemy. It is precisely these endless defenders like you, sir, in whatever colorful ways they dream up, that exacerbate the problems we have today. It is the constant looking for excuses that makes this so much worse than it has to be. This isn't a sane Catholic analysis of the facts. This is just propaganda designed to excuse Francis, because that's all it does. It only helps Francis. Now, I'm not going to judge anyone in particular, but let me just say that I have a suspicion that for many people who come up with these wild defenses of Francis and have a very selective vision when it comes to Benedict XVI and John Paul II, I have a feeling that ultimately they're defending the status quo only because they want to protect themselves. And that may very well be subconscious. I don't know. You see, Saying that Francis is not the pope and that all of the Vatican II popes have been charlatans has some very undesirable consequences. And especially if you're someone like Mr. Hunwick, who was ordained a priest in the Novus Ordo sect, which means he's not even a valid priest. So I realize that's a difficult thing to accept, even just on an emotional level. I realize that. But you know what? At the end of the day, reality is what it is. And it takes virtue, it takes fortitude especially, and grace to be able to face that. But face it, you must. Heaven is not for wimps. What did our Lord say? He said, quote, The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away, Unquote. That's Matthew 11, verse 2. You have to understand that we must do whatever it takes to get to heaven. Eternity is forever, And that is a pretty long time. So for all of you out there who have persuaded yourselves that no matter what, Francis is the Pope and the Vatican II sacraments are valid and so forth, ask yourselves if what's really driving this isn't perhaps your desire to protect the church so much, but the desire to protect yourself from uncomfortable consequences. Just saying. Now also, don't despair. There's nothing to despair over make an act of hope. Even if you are a Novus Ordo priest and you're starting to seriously question whether your ordination was valid, you're not the first one and you won't be the last. If you'd like, send us a note to trapcast at novosordowatch.org, trapcast at novosordowatch.org, and we can connect you with a former Novus Ordo priest who came to that realization himself one day, converted to real Catholicism, and was then ordained properly as a real Catholic priest. So if you'd like to make contact with someone like that, let us know. And of course, we will treat the matter with the utmost discretion. That goes without saying. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd say it's time for a short break. TRAGCAST Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming, one that addresses not only the current crisis in the Church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune into member supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org. Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic. Looking for EWTN. This ain't it, Track <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, have no fear, Tradcast is still here. We are back with our second segment of episode 18. Thanks for sticking around. I don't know about you, but I'm just sitting here totally closed in on myself in my self-referential little world. It feels great, by the way, but I do it just to annoy Francis. Yeah, no, because it it seems like every other day now he warns against the danger of being closed in on oneself and that the church cannot be self-referential. Heaven forbid, you know, like like until he appeared on the scene, the Catholic Church didn't know what she was doing. For almost 2,000 years, she was just concerned with herself, never preached the gospel, never converted people, never helped anyone, never went out to the peripheries. Yeah, and then speaking of peripheries, you want to see some real peripheries and how the Catholic Church dealt with those? Then have a look at the martyrdom of the North American martyrs in the 17th century. I'm talking about Saints Isaac, Job, John de Brabouf, and their companions. They were Jesuits, by the way. And they did real evangelism work, preaching the true gospel and not the Francis gospel among the Iroquois Indians in Canada. And for that, they were eventually gruesomely tortured by those that they were working to convert. I think they were eaten alive or something. Well, that is real Catholicism. They didn't go out there and preach religious liberty and freedom of conscience and existentialism and all that junk. They didn't go to North America in order to just open a string of soup kitchens waiting to see if a few pagans would eventually ask them why they're doing it so they can witness. Anyway, I'm sorry, I just needed to vent a little. The daily barrage of Francis Blather is simply too much for any rational being to take. And it's usually always the same stuff, you know, insufferable tripe about interpersonal relationships that really has nothing to do with the gospel per se. It's all naturalism, concerned mostly with the temporal affairs of this world, living your dreams, reaching out to others, building bridges, and on and on. And what Francis preaches might as well be proclaimed by the Secretary General of the United Nations or the Dalai Lama or some grandmaster at the local Masonic Lodge. I mean, who would actually die for that? All right. Well, in this portion of the program now, we're going to do major penance and listen to some of the things Francis has said lately. And we've created a special jingle just for that. And I know you're going to enjoy it. So here we go. From the Jorge's Mouth. Yes, from the Jorge's mouth, that's right. Now, surely you know that there's no way to cover everything stupid, blasphemous, heretical, or erroneous that Francis says, because I could do this show three hours a day and we would get nowhere. So, what I've prepared here is just a tiny selection. First, you know, Francis still doesn't know why God permits children to suffer. And he doesn't fail to point it out, as he did most recently on May twenty seventh, when he visited a children's hospital somewhere in Italy. Quote, Often and again I ask myself, why do children suffer? And I don't find any explanation. I only look at the crucifix and stand still there. Unquote. Now What may seem to be at first sight an act of humility in that he says, hey, look, I don't have all the answers. I'm not going to pretend, yada, yada, well, is actually nothing of the sort. By saying that he doesn't have an answer, and uh, back in January of 2015 in the Philippines, what he said was even worse because uh, there he said that there is no answer. Not that just he didn't have one, but that there isn't one. By saying that, he's actually causing great harm to the souls of those dear children that he visited in the hospital because he's basically telling them that their suffering is pointless or at least that it doesn't really fit into God's plan, that God has not revealed to us why he permits suffering even of the innocent. And Francis is effectively scandalizing those children because he is leading them, leading them to the conclusion that God is cruel and that, for all we know, there is no purpose to suffering. So, what is the answer? I'll give you a succinct answer that you can remember whenever somebody brings this up as an objection. Why does God permit suffering? Because suffering is supernaturally meritorious. Suffering has a supernatural purpose. If accepted in the right spirit, it will bring countless graces and help to predispose us to eternal life. It will help bring about the conversion of sinners, it will make reparation for sin, and it will make us like to Christ. That's the short answer. Now, Francis doesn't understand any of that because he's a naturalist. He doesn't really believe in the supernatural. The main focus for him is life in this world. To put it bluntly, if Bergoglio had lived at the time of Christ, he would have cared only for the multiplication of the loaves and for Christ healing the sick and assisting the poor. He wouldn't have given a hoot about the spiritual things and Christ's spiritual doctrine, the supernatural life of grace, the conversion of sinners, infinite atonement rendered to an all-holy God, salvation, and so forth. And that's why Francis doesn't preach Christ to the secular world, or to the Jews, to the Muslims, to the pagans. To them, he only preaches corporal works of mercy, dialogue, and fraternity. Which is why, by the way, Francis is so adamantly opposed to the death penalty. Now, we could do an entire show just on the death penalty— And uh, who knows? Maybe we can do that sometime. I'd like to. But for right now, we'll have to be brief. The reason he hates the death penalty so much is that the death sentence is the end of natural life. And that is the worst possible thing for a naturalist. But of course, Francis being Francis, he goes a bit further even and draws Novus Ordo principles to their logical conclusion. Not only does Francis oppose the death penalty, he also opposes life imprisonment, which he calls a hidden death sentence. Now, this is typical Bergolian drivel, but see how this too follows from his naturalism. If earthly life is all there is, or at least is the main purpose of our existence, then not only does the death sentence end it for you, but even life imprisonment becomes a kind of death sentence because your life is basically over. You are no longer in control of your life. And if you take this reasoning to its logical conclusion, you will end up opposing all punishment as an affront to human dignity. That's where that ultimately leads. Now, is life imprisonment truly a hidden death sentence, as Bergoglio calls it? Of course not. Only a naturalist would say that. There is no death sentence at all. You don't die from being imprisoned for life. You die from, well, from being human, from the death sentence that God gave to all of humanity when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. See Genesis chapter 3. So to call this a hidden death sentence is nothing but attention-grabbing bunk from Jorge Bergoglio. And consider what this means in practice. If life imprisonment also needs to be done away with, that means that people like Charles Manson, Dennis Rader, and Kermit Gosnell, for example, would all be set free. Thanks to Francis. Now, since we need to move on here, I'm not going to get into how what Francis says about the death penalty contradicts Catholic doctrine, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll get to that uh, sometime in the future. But we'll stay on the topic of Francis for just a little bit longer. Pope prays for conversion of terrorists was the headline for a post published for the English edition of La Stampa's Vatican Insider website on May 28th. Now, this deserves some attention because it is very rare that Francis mentions the word conversion at all. La Stampa writes that during the Regina Caeli that day, Francis prayed that the Lord, quote, may convert the hearts of the terrorists, unquote. Yay, Francis is praying for conversion. Yeah, well, except that, of course, he didn't say conversion to what? What does he want the terrorists to convert to? To peaceful Islam? To atheism? Deism? Catholicism? He didn't say. And why not? Well, we all know the answer to that. Francis ultimately doesn't care what religion you are. Well, as long as you're not a Catholic, I guess, yes. No, as long as you're not violent or mean, he really doesn't give a flip what you believe in. Next, Francis has written the foreword to a new book by Cardinal Peter Turkson by the name of Corrosion. By the way, what, what is it with all these cardinals writing books all the time? Do they have nothing else to do? It's unbelievable. Anyway, Francis' foreword to the book Corrosion is a real doozy. I'm going to quote a few bits and pieces from the translation provided by Zenit.org. It's so bad you've got to hear it. Here we go. Quote, Always as consequence of the fall, corruption reveals an antisocial behavior to the point of dissolving the validity of relationships and therefore the pillars on which a society is founded, the coexistence of persons and the vocation to develop them. Corruption breaks all that and replaces the common good by a particular interest that contaminates any general perspective. It is born of a corrupt heart and is the worst social wound because it generates very grave problems and crimes that involve everyone. We, Christians and non-Christians, we are snowflakes, but if we unite, we can become an avalanche, a strong and constructive movement. Behold the new humanism, this renaissance, this recreation against corruption that we can realize with prophetic audacity." We must all work together, Christians, non-Christians, persons of all faiths, and non-believers, to fight this form of blasphemy, this cancer that undermines our lives. It is urgent to become aware, and for this an education and a merciful culture is necessary, cooperation on the part of each one according to his possibilities, his parents, his creativity." You know what? Why don't we just leave it at that? Okay. Now, the final item from our From the Jorge's Mouth portion of the program, Francis has come up with some more new beatitudes. You know, since the eight beatitudes of our Lord weren't enough, here comes Jorge and adds a few more. On November 1st of last year already, unofficially, he introduced six new ones, including basically, Blessed Are the Recyclers and Ecumenists and whatnot. Anyway, just the other day, we got three new ones from Jorge the Humble, and here they are. Quote, "'Blessed are the open hands that embrace the poor and help them. They are hands that bring hope. Blessed are the hands that reach beyond every barrier of culture, religion, and nationality and pour the balm of consolation over the wounds of humanity.'" Blessed are the open hands that ask nothing in exchange, with no ifs or buts or maybes. They are hands that call down God's blessing upon their brothers and sisters. Unquote. You know, the thing is, if Christ had wanted to add a few more beatitudes, he would have done just that. But he only gave us eight. We really don't need Francis supplementing here. You know, this, this man, Francis, I, he must think of himself as the Messiah. And not just with that, but also when you consider, for example, that in, instead of blessing people, he keeps touching them, usually on the head. He keeps imposing his hand as though he had the power of healing. In the gospel, we read that our Lord laid hands on people and healed them. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verse 40. Now, Francis lays his hands on the sick and doesn't heal them. They're just as sick as before. That's what distinguishes the true Messiah from the false one. But the scary thing is that they all venerate him as though he had the power of healing them. Did you see what happened at Fatima for the 100th anniversary? Francis was going around with that hideous ventilator monstrance to bless the sick that were all gathered in a special area there, And as he walked by with the monstrance, the people were crying out to him, trying to touch his garments as though he were the Messiah. That the true Messiah was in the monstrance, well, it wasn't a valid Eucharist, of course, but, you know, they they all supposedly believed that it was valid, that the true Messiah was supposedly in the monstrance, the people didn't seem to care that much. It was all about Francis frightening, absolutely frightening. Oh, and then, of course, you also have Francis playing Messiah by pretending to dispense people from observing the sixth and ninth commandments. No, you know what? It's even worse. Not only does he say you are not bound to refrain from committing adultery, sometimes you actually have to commit adultery, according to Francis. In Amoris Laetitia, that uh, infernal so-called apostolic exhortation, Francis proclaims that God sometimes might be asking you to commit adultery. Yeah, I'm not making this up. You can check it out for yourself. It's in Amoris Letizia number 303. Quote, Yet conscience can do more than recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. It can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what for now is the most generous response which can be given to God, and come to see with a certain moral security that it is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits, while not yet fully the objective ideal." Man, if only King Henry VIII had known that. I mean, he would have told Pope Clement VII, Hey, look at this concrete situation I'm in. I've discerned that God is asking me to marry Anne Boleyn. Look at how absurd all this is. Francis has turned thou shalt not commit adultery into thou shalt commit adultery. You know, Francis clone Blaise Supich, the uh, dirtbag Archbishop of Chicago, has said that in Amor's Letizia, Francis is exercising his power of binding and loosing. Yeah. Yeah, nice try, Mr. Supich, except that even a true Pope cannot dispense from the divine law. So when you go to judgment and God asks you why you broke the sixth commandment, you can't say, well, the Pope allowed it. Okay? That's just not going to fly. The Pope can dispense from ecclesiastical laws, sure, but he cannot dispense from divine law, just like the Pope can't allow you to murder or to blaspheme or steal, for example, right? So neither can he allow you to commit adultery. Oh, and speaking of Supage and adultery and Amor's Letizia, on June 4th, The Dirtbag gave an interview to Father Thomas Rosica of the Canadian Salt and Light Television, in which he said that in Amor's Letizia, Francis is calling us all to an adult spirituality, out of an adolescent spirituality into an adult spirituality. You know, since for 2,000 years, the church was just a bunch of adolescents who had to be told what to do and what not to do, as in, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And now, since Vatican II, we've all finally matured to the point where we discern what is right for us in our concrete situation. If you want to see how much spiritual maturity there's been in the Vatican II sect, just look at the new Mass compared to the traditional Catholic mass of the ages. And that right there tells you all you need to know. As someone on Twitter pointed out, when Blaise Supich talks about adult spirituality, what he really means is adulterous spirituality. And that's exactly what's going on here. But alright, enough of Francis and Cupich and all that. Let's look at some other recent news. Uh, Well, you know, I really don't like to cover a whole lot of news in the full-length Tradcast because by the time we can get one of these episodes out, the news just isn't all that new anymore, and uh, lots of other stuff has happened in the meantime, and so I I try to keep the newsy stuff for the mini-podcast we have, the Tradcast Express, which hopefully you've all enjoyed very much and benefited from. Oh yeah, and speaking of benefiting, please keep in mind that although we offer all of our content for free, all these things cost money and they don't pay for themselves and I gotta eat. So if you have a few dimes to spare, please head on over to novosordowatch.org slash donate. And you can make a tax-deductible contribution there. Uh, Plus, your donation may qualify for a great incentive gift that we've prepared, certainly in this month of June 2017, and probably also after. So just check it out and take a look. novosortowatch.org slash donate. And, of course, we have this link also in the show notes. Thank you very much, and may God reward you for whatever you can do. Now... In case you haven't heard about it yet, George Newmayer just came out with a new book entitled The Political Pope, How Pope Francis is Delighting the Liberal Left and Abandoning Conservatives. The author is a contributing editor to The American Spectator at spectator.org. Now, of course, there have been countless books about Francis, but I think this is the first one written by a novus ordo that's really critical of him and documents many of the things he's said and done that go against Catholic faith and practice. I haven't actually read the book, but I do have it here, and I want to read you the table of contents so you can get a good idea of what this book is about, because it'll probably serve as a pretty handy collection of evidence against the man. So here's the table of contents. Chapter 1, the Pope they have been waiting for. 2. Who am I to judge? 3. The left's long march to the papacy. 4. The liberal Jesuit from Latin America. 5. The unholy alliance. 6. The first radical green Pope. 7. The open borders Pope. 8. The pacifist Pope. 9. I don't want to convert you. 10. 10 the permissive Pope. 11. How Francis is undoing the legacy of Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. Ouch. Um, 12. Will Paul correct Peter? And uh, that's all it is. 12 chapters. Now, in these two last chapter titles, you can see very clearly that the author is obviously not a Sede but a conservative Novus Ordo, and uh, maybe he's indulged. I'm not sure, but in any case, I'm by no means recommending the book as a theological guide to anything, but like I said, it might prove useful as a handy tool, as a as a, as a collection of specific pieces of evidence in the case against Francis. And uh, of course what I what I personally appreciate about the book is that Novel's Ordo Watch is mentioned in a footnote. It's footnote number forty one in chapter four. Yes, it's just one tiny little mention, but hey, that's better than nothing. All right, moving on. Our Recognize and Resist friends are having their annual Identity Crisis Conference again. The so-called Catholic Identity Conference is coming to Weirton, West Virginia, October 27th through the 29th. And it looks like the guest star there is going to be Mr. Athanasius Schneider, the Novus Ordo Auxiliary Bishop of Astana, Kazakhstan. You know, I really wonder when the man is ever actually in Kazakhstan. Apparently there's not that much to do there. I don't know. He's he's always out and about and giving interviews and attending conferences and, you know, whatever. I don't know. Now, look, the reason I'm being somewhat derisive here is that objectively speaking, and I say objectively speaking because I'm not questioning anybody's intentions or piety or goodwill or whatever, but objectively speaking, what they're doing, the, the, the recognize and resist traditionalists, what they're doing there is absurd. They're continually trying to uphold an identity that their very church rejects. The absurdity consists in them trying to be Catholic in a non-Catholic church. That's why they have to have an identity conference, because the religion they mean to believe in is obviously not the religion of Francis and the other Vatican authorities. So that's why I call events like this a neotrad self-help conference, because ultimately they're all getting together to give each other some hope and to, I guess, buttress their conviction that they're the real Catholics, despite of what their church says. And this is the kind of contradiction you end up with if your first premise is always that Sedevacantism is false. And honestly, since Francis and especially Amoris Laetitia, their lowest common denominator has been lowered considerably. Now, to think that Cardinal Raymond Burke is now, for all intents and purposes, considered a traditionalist is ridiculous. Burke is a Vatican II supporter through and through, and a fan of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. But then again, that appears to be the case now more and more for supposed traditionalists like Michael Matt who appear to be inclined to reduce orthodoxy to a question of whether you agree that adultery is a sin and that those who live in such a state cannot receive the sacraments until they repent. And so, all of a sudden, John Paul II isn't so bad. And he's even being held up as the standard of orthodoxy that Francis is deviating from. I mean, we already talked about this earlier, but that's how far we've come, how far they've come, the semi-trads. And that's why we suddenly see some recognizing resistors speak in glowing terms about the head of the congregation for the destruction of the faith, Cardinal Gerhard Ludwig Müller, because he opposes communion for adulterers. Never mind that the man has publicly questioned the dogmas of the resurrection of Christ, the perpetual virginity of Mary, and uh, transubstantiation, for example. But that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, see, because he says remarried divorcees can't go to communion. That does it. That's all it takes now to make you a Catholic. Well, congratulations, Francis. You have succeeded. You know, maybe Francis' entire purpose is to get everybody to accept John Paul II and Benedict XVI as ultra-Orthodox Catholics. Well, Because then he succeeded, it seems. Now, regarding Athanasius Schneider, there's one more thing I want to say. At the recent Rome Life conference, which was the same conference, by the way, that uh, Father Linus Clovis, uh, where he spoke at, that we mentioned in the first segment. At that same conference, Athanasius Schneider lamented the great apostasy that is obviously afflicting the world today. Well, okay, great. But I'd like to ask this. Mr. Schneider. If there is a great apostasy going on these days, who do you think is the great apostate? And to give you a hint, sir, it's the same man whom you recently denounced as promoting the joy of adultery. See, this is the problem. People are not willing to allow the evidence to determine their position. A great apostasy can't come about by accident. Somewhere there is a great apostate. Remember, the Vatican II revolution didn't come from the ground up. It wasn't a bunch of laymen rebelling and then a weak hierarchy not doing anything about it and eventually succumbing. No, it was imposed from the top. John XXIII got the ball rolling and put all the mechanisms in place and then Paul VI finished the job. John Paul I only lived for 33 days in his role as a papal pretender, so he's kind of irrelevant, although he lived long enough to ensure he paid sufficient obeisance to the modernist revolution by combining both John XXIII's and Paul VI's names into one, John Paul, which had never been done before. He also eliminated the papal coronation ceremony and got rid of the gestatorial chair. All that in 33 days. Yes, I know he resumed using the uh, gestatorial chair, but he only did that because the people were complaining that they couldn't see their pope. And then John Paul II gave the modernist revolution the necessary charisma to make it attractive for the masses, especially the young. And he gave it plenty of pseudo-intellectual justification. Benedict XVI then came along and gave the whole thing a more traditional touch on the outside, in terms of externals, while pushing ahead with the modernist program. And now they've got Francis. So, again, it all came from the top. So when people tell you about how there are these terrible abuses going on, especially in the liturgy, you can remind them that the new mass itself was the first abuse, and that one came from Paul VI., But while plenty of people are willing to acknowledge so many of these errors and outrages and blasphemies and heresies, very few people are apparently willing to allow this evidence to lead them to the only possible conclusion— And that is that the institution in the Vatican today is not the Catholic Church anymore, but an apostate sect that masquerades as the Catholic Church, while the real Catholic Church is eclipsed and underground, scattered among those few clergy and laity who still retain the same faith as the Church of Pope Pius XII and his predecessors, and do not profess communion with a public heretic." Somehow people just absolutely refuse to go there. Now, while I can understand that it's, it's not desirable in and of itself, it is the only possible option because all the other alternatives run afoul of Catholic teaching. The church can be underground for a while as she was before. A man can claim to be the pope who really isn't. That's possible. But that the church should defect and turn from being the ark of salvation into an ark of damnation, that is not possible. But people would apparently rather believe in a defected church, in a church that is as Protestant as Martin Luther's, and that they have to correct and resist, which is what they're doing at that Catholic Identity Conference. They would rather believe in such a defected heretical church as the true bride of Christ than believe that Jorge Bergoglio and his five predecessors of unhappy memory are not actually popes. I don't know what it is. I, I guess it's a kind of a spiritual version of Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, Have you heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Let me give you the definition you'll find in Wikipedia because it, it gets to the heart of the matter. Quote, Stockholm Syndrome is a condition that causes hostages to develop a psychological alliance with their captors as a survival strategy during captivity. These feelings, resulting from a bond formed between captor and captives during intimate time spent together, are generally considered irrational in light of the danger or risk endured by the victims. Generally speaking, Stockholm syndrome consists of strong emotional ties that develop between two persons, where one person intermittently harasses, beats, threatens, abuses, or intimidates the other. Unquote. So maybe that's what's happening here in a in a spiritual sense. Francis and his five predecessors have demolished Catholicism to the best of their abilities, and and people are still sticking up for them. He's the Holy Father. Sister Lucy said he'd have much to suffer. Yeah, exactly. He'll have much to suffer. But these, these false Vatican II popes have been causing much suffering. That's pretty much the opposite, isn't it? So, who knows? Maybe it really is a spiritual version of Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know. It's their survival strategy, I guess. But the irony is that these people have traded in the papacy for a pope. They have decided they would rather have a meaningless papacy but someone to occupy the office than to retain the true nature and significance of this most highly exalted office, this divinely instituted office, and have no one who currently occupies it. So they've purchased their pope, as it were, at the price of the papacy. And because they've done that, because they've exchanged the papacy for a pope, the result is that they now have neither. They have neither the true doctrine of the papacy nor a true pope. And this is terrifying. You know, perhaps people don't fully realize this, but if you abandon the true doctrine of the papacy, you're abandoning the Catholic faith. You cease being a Catholic altogether. You're just as non-Catholic as Francis, then. If Francis is a valid pope, then the papacy has no meaning. Then the Catholic Church is just another human institution, a fake church like all the others. Then the papacy does not, in fact, enjoy God's protection as the church teaches it does. Then the pope can be a communist, a modernist, a Protestant, a radical environmentalist that worships nature a pacifist, an atheist, anything really. So by stubbornly maintaining against all the evidence that Francis is nonetheless a true pope, people are distorting and totally abandoning the papacy. People, take heart. The papacy is true. It's Bergoglio that is false. So stop doubting the papacy and start doubting Bergoglio. This was Tradcast 18. Hope you found it informative and worth your while. Please be sure to uh, tune in again next time. And remember, you wanted to make that donation now. (laughs) Until next time, may God bless you.